Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2019, volume 57, number three. My name's David Fazakali, DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cabe, DTB editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month looks at a good news story in the management of diabetes and talks about the tipping point. So what's the reason for the good news and what's the tipping point? Yes, yeah, so this is something which I was particularly keen to uh, write an editorial about, and this is regarding the DIRECT study for diabetes. Now, I hope most of our listeners have heard of the DIRECT study for diabetes, and if you haven't, go and find it and read it, because this is a game-changer, and this is why I wanted to use the term tipping point for this editorial. Just a bit of background. So this is a primary care-based study, 306 patients with non-insulin-dependent diabetes who'd had it for less than seven years. And Prof Taylor and his team, uh, sponsored by Diabetes UK, organised a study where they randomised these people into either standard GP treatment or intensive weight management. And that weight management programme included a very low calorie diet and then a stepped food reintroduction and weight loss management going forward so it was a a properly planned approach to weight loss but the big the big outcome here is that at 12 months almost half of the intervention group had achieved remission from their diabetes and were not taking their medication so i think this is a really big bit of news i think many um, people involved in the management of diabetes nurses, GPs, uh, hospital consultants over the last years have been bombarded by this enormous rise in the use of drugs for the management of non-insulin-dependent diabetes. And this is a game-changer, I think, and uh, something which we all should be looking at and getting engaged with. So you can't separate out the three phases of the study, all three that were important. So the dietary restriction at the start, and they stopped all medicines. Then the food reintroduction, and then that long-term weight support in weight management. That's right. And I I think that's one of the things that was really crucial about the direct study is that, first of all, it was primary care-based, so it wasn't removed into secondary care. But secondly, they really worked hard at the weight reduction aspect of it. It wasn't a sort of bolt-on bit. It was the central element to this. And it sort of demonstrated that it does work. And I think the The fact that this study actually is being pushed and talked about by the team, by Diabetes UK, if you you put direct study into YouTube or into Google, you'll find enormous volume of interest and information about it. And that's why I think Prof Taylor and his groups work, you know, the fact that they are sort of, they've been really good at highlighting this all amounts to perhaps a really important tipping point. Because I think for me as a as a jobbing GP, for years now I've been talking about weight to patients, but their eyes glaze over and I've just faced with trying to drop their HbA1c down and you end up on this myriad of drugs and I'm now much more fired up to say, no, it really is about the weight. And actually we're now beginning to commission proper dietetic support for primary care to do this. And I think that's why I think you know, there is a real, real sea change in the management of type 2 diabetes going on now. I mean, some of the numbers struck me that the, the, the group who were in the intervention group, 10 kilogram weight loss compared with one kilogram. If you, if you were a, a manufacturer of a, a drug that produced that, you would have made it. Absolutely. I think this is always the case. Time and time again, you find when you get these interventions that work, you think, my goodness, you know, think how much you could sell that for if it was put in a box with a with a clever name. And I think, you know, the difficulty for 
NHS sometimes is that there's an exceptionally well-oiled machine to get a drug to market to be used in a treatment of a disease. There's a very poorly oiled machine in doing the same thing for a lifestyle intervention. But I really am hopeful. Um, the first couple of patients I referred to our local dietetic saying, look, please help, help me with this patient. We want to do the direct study approach. I got sort of rather unhelpful letters back saying we're not commissioned to do this but actually in the last month I've heard that they are going to commission the service for this so it is happening and I know the NHS England and in particular the chief exec is really keen on pushing this intervention out so I think it is going to be a really good news story. And it's that translation isn't it from research into practice that's going to be crucial. And let's be honest you know we're, we're not known for being enthusiasts perhaps in DTB and it may be that in two or three years time after you've had this intervention you're back to square one so you know like like everything, you never know the long-term outcomes of anything when you first start out. But I think at the moment, there's every reason to be quite uh, enthusiastic about this. Good. Thank you very much. And our first article this month reviews, um, what should we say, a newly licensed old drug for the management of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. So what is it? Yeah, so this is a um, drug that was initially licensed way back in 19, I think 1958 initially, called Dibendox in those days. But this is a, a combination of doxylamine and uh, vitamin B6, uh, Zonvir is its trade name. And this is a drug that's been licensed in Canada now um, for some years, I think since uh, 79. And it's now a licensed product available in the UK for the management of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. And it's the caveat to that is when conservative management hasn't worked. Correct. Yes. I mean, that, and I think that's, you know, the, it's very interesting because this, this is the first drug that's licensed for the management of nausea and vomiting. And all of us involved in the management of this really horrible condition, you know, the majority of women do develop some element of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. And for a, for a third of them, it's, you know, it's a serious issue. And about 1% of women end up being admitted to hospital with hyperemesis. So, this is a common condition and as a GP uh, we've been through all elements of management. I remember when I first started it was very much felt that it was forbidden to use drugs because of the risk on pregnancy and then suddenly everyone said oh no you're, you should be managing these patients with drugs and you know and there were certain ones that would be okay but of course they were all off license and now we have a, a product that is is licensed but but where the evidence is you know so so. So in the in the main study that supported the licensing, the intervention was compared with placebo, and the outcome was this change in the puke score. Yeah, the puke score. I have to say, I it's so schoolboyish, isn't it? It's like ENT have a they have a snot score, and the uh, obstetricians have a puke score, P U Q E. And I do wish somehow that just people would grow up and just you know have a score that's just nausea and vomiting score anyway we have a puke score and as you say it's it's three elements maximum of 15 points you can score and the difference between the placebo group and the doxylamine and pyridoxine vitamin b6 drug was 0.9 of a point i think about one point, point. so that's the difference so Yes, it's statistically significant. The drug company say that they had a expert opinion group that said, yes, that's also clinically significant. But I, it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to know. We'll have to ask patients who try this whether it really is helpful or not. 
So we know something about its efficacy. What about its harms? Yes, yeah, so obviously uh, doxylamine has certain amounts of anticholinergic effects, so dry mouth, all those typical things, and sleepiness is other, another possible issue. But uh, I say this is a drug that has been licensed for many years in Canada, so concerns about harms in pregnancy are not one of them. But what we don't know is how it compares with all the other off-label treatments that we've used for many years. Well, this is it. And this is, this is you know, we actually in the article talk about a systematic review that was published in 2016, which supported actually quite a number of drugs or products that we've used in the past, including things like ginger, vitamin B6 on its own, antihistamines, metoclopramide. And, you know, let's be honest, a lot of those are considerably cheaper than this new drug. This new drug is going to cost about £160 per month, which is about 10 times more expensive than some of the other standard treatments that we've been using. So we have this issue with GMC guidance, paragraph 69, if you're interested about the fact that if a licensed product exists for a condition, you should use that one. So it's a difficult one, but it looks as if it's probably as good as some of the off-label products we've been using for some time. And the current guidance from the Royal College of Obstetrician and Gynaecologists on the management of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, which was published before any drug was, was licensed, talks about a range of different products that, that should be used. And, and obviously, you have now got that dilemma of whether you go for the licensed product or something you're familiar with. Yeah, and I, th- I think particularly in pregnancy, it's this is one you, you have to bring the woman with you on this because... You know, they're often very anxious about taking drugs in pregnancy. And often one of the big issues for patients who have hyperemesis is the fear that they're going to harm their baby, both through their hyperemesis and through any drug they might be taking. And therefore, you need to bring them along. And therefore, I think this is going to be a discussion with the woman concerned about this is the range of products I've got. You know, some are licensed for this, some aren't, but some we've got, you know, years of experience with and really discuss with them and make sure that whatever drug is chosen is something that they um, would also agree with and are happy to take. Okay, thank you very much. And our second article is a review of the use of clozapine in primary care. And before everyone throws things at their iPod, iPhone, smart device to say we don't prescribe clozapine in primary care, yes, accept that but this is more about supporting patients who may be being prescribed clozapine from secondary care but understanding what some of the limitations of the drug are and what what roles and responsibilities clinicians have to make sure that patients are, are well supported so yeah. what, what do we cover yeah so i i think you're right i think you're absolutely right. there's a the risk here people saying oh no it's going to be another shared care agreement we're talking about but we're not what we're suggesting here is that Clozapine is increasingly being used. and In fact, one of the first points I'd like to say here is that we probably have a role as clinicians in primary care to ask ourselves, particularly if you've got a patient who's struggling with current medication for their schizophrenia, why aren't they on clozapine? And one of the outcomes from uh, NICE guidance was that they were concerned that people were waiting far too long to be put onto clozapine for the management of their schizophrenia. So that's the point. So actually there's an element here of, of saying, Read this article, it'll give you an, an idea. We obviously, like we like to do, we've given you a really good background. 
information about the management of schizophrenia, you know, nice quick catch-up points there. We talk about the NICE guidance. We talk about some of the issues with side effects from clozapine, which you might, you know, obviously engage with in your daily work with patients. We talk a little bit about benign ethnic neutropenia, which might catch you out if you're a GP. And there were some really interesting nuggets. For example, I was unaware that caffeine increases clozapine concentration. And if someone has a five-day caffeine-free period, it'll actually lead to a 50% reduction in clozapine concentrations in their blood. And that was, I thought, a really interesting issue because... You may have patients who talk to you about this or perhaps, you know, um, you become aware of this. They may not have been aware of it. So I think there's lots of really interesting stuff we cover in it. And obviously the the big thing people probably associate with clozapine is the need for routine blood tests and to check what's happening to, to white cell counts. And that's largely dealt with by the specialist who's prescribing it and they have to be registered and the patient registered and the pharmacy registered. But it's all the other adverse effects or potential adverse effects where there's some crossover with what primary care can be doing to support people as well as what the specialist is doing. And it's about bringing perhaps some of those to people's attention. Absolutely right. So we, you know, we, we do list all the sort of possible side effects and also the issue remember, reminder that obviously if someone comes in with a possible infection to consider an urgent full blood count in those situations. So it's all there. I used to say, it, we're not talking about this is how primary care can start managing patients with schizophrenia with clozapine, although in some countries that is the case. I have to say, though, I think, you know, with this sudden new contract we've got with primary care networks being developed, perhaps there is a role if an area wanted to take on this to commission that themselves. So in that respect, it might be a very useful base for them to use if they were thinking about that. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, To read this and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtp.bmj.com.